Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. I'm going to read from Mark 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey, and he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. All right. So good to see you all. We are beginning the Gospel of Mark today. This is my favorite book of the Bible, I think. Um, it's definitely my favorite gospel, but it's, I think it's my favorite book of the Bible. And um, so we're going to do this. We're going to take forever to walk through the whole thing, cover to cover. And so I can't encourage you enough. If, if you get the time and you have the, the discipline to just carve out an hour and a half or whatever it takes you to read it, and just read it in one sitting if you can. It's amazing because you, if you know the story of the gospel about Jesus dying and rising, if you sit down and read this book in one go, It creates this kind of awe inside of you going, I can't believe they're going to kill this man. And then he's going to rise. And so you can kind of feel it as you read. So I'd encourage you, if you get a chance this week at some point to carve out just some time and just be blown away by the story of the gospel in one sitting, it will do you good and you'll remember it all your life. I promise you. So, all right. So, Gospel of Mark. I'll tell you just a little bit about it, and then we're just going to walk through the first eight verses that Lisa just read for us. So, first, Mark, the author, the, the, the writer, is, is the man named Mark, but Mark wasn't actually one of the 12 disciples. Rather, Papias, an early Christian in the second century, was friends of friends with John the Apostle. And those friends got together with Papias, and they were talking to Papias about where did the gospel of Mark come from? Since Mark wasn't one of the 12, how did he get all of his information? And they said, oh, Peter. Peter and Mark were very close, and Peter actually dictates the entire gospel. Mark writes it. Second point is this. Who is Mark writing to? Mark is writing not to a lecture hall full of unbelievers or skeptics. He's writing to a Christian church in the city of Rome in the late 60s AD, okay? And he's writing to people who are being persecuted severely for their faith. These people are are under the pressure of Nero. If you remember, if you 
if you've heard of Nero, <laughs> rather, uh, Nero put to death both Peter and Paul in the year 64 to 68, right in there. So persecution is very, very high. Christians are being thrown to animals to be devoured in Colosseums. The pressure is on. And so Mark is writing this gospel to admonish the church to stay steadfast, to stay fixed on Jesus, and to be resolute in their commitment to follow him even at the cost of death itself. So Mark is writing this good news of the gospel. Another thing to tell you about, I guess, is the word gospel. The word gospel is not unique to the Bible. Like you find it, we talk about the gospel of Jesus, but it was not unique to the Bible. Rather, the word gospel was used at the, announce of, uh, the announcement of Caesar Augustus. When he was born, they said, gospel, good news, a king has been born. Uh, it would be a word that was used at the coronation of Caesar. Gospel, as they crown him. Good news. Uh, it would also be a word that was used in the military context of, of, of battle. That when more land would be taken captive, citizens would now come under the rule of Rome. Gospel would go back to the Caesar going, good news, there's more citizens in your kingdom. Hearing some Bible language? <laughs> So now when the New Testament opens up, we have gospel, son of God, kingdom, citizens. There's somebody else on the scene. And so the New Testament writers are reaching into their own social context and grabbing words and recycling them all according to the person and the work of Jesus. So if you read through, like I mentioned a moment ago, if you just read through the gospel of Mark in one go, you'll see two things, or where the book shifts, rather. The first eight chapters, you are not presented with Jesus as a lecturer, as a guy in a philosophy classroom, as somebody just rambling on endlessly and talking about journal articles and footnotes and blah, 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 blah. Nope. Jesus is also not someone like a stoic sitting on a stone, like kind of just thinking. But rather, the first eight chapters, Jesus can't be stopped. It's so fast. In fact, the word immediately shows up a million times in the Gospel of Mark. It just keeps showing up because it, the idea is not that Mark was dumb and had bad grammar and didn't know for another word to come up with like immediately, but rather his point is try to present you with a man on mission, a man under pressure, a man that is here to get something done. So in chapter one, you see Jesus is baptized and then he goes into the temple and he begins to, uh, or he goes into the synagogue and he begins to teach as one with authority. That's another word that'll show up a whole lot, authority. Then he heals a leper. And then in chapter two, he heals the paralytic that gets dropped down through the roof. And then in chapter three, he heals a man on the Sabbath with the withered hand. In chapter four, he begins to teach the, soil, the parable of the soils. It's the only parable that shows up in Mark. Chapter five, he starts to drive out demons into the herd of pigs. Remember that story? Chapter six, he feeds 5,000 families. Chapter six, he also walks on the water. <laughs> Chapter 7, he begins to teach with uh, what makes people clean or unclean. Chapter 8, we get the confession of Peter, you're the Christ. And at that moment, the book turns. Everything changes. Jesus in that moment goes, right, and I'm going to die for the sin of the world. And I'm calling people to lay down everything and follow me. And then the rest of the gospel takes this really dark tone of like, whoa, the cost of discipleship is unbelievably high. Truth is not relative. Jesus fulfills the law. Jesus will stare down Caesar. 
Pilate, Caiaphas, and the cross itself, and triumph over the grave. And that's how the book ends. So there's Mark. So just read it in one go. It's, un, it's unbelievable. All right, so Mark 1, verse 1. I'm so stoked. Can I tell you one more thing about Mark real quick? If you go through church history, you'll find something called the tetramorph. It's a fun weird word, tetramorph. The tetramorph is where you find four beings, uh, get a, they receive a kind of a, a dramatization or a personification of, of the four evangelists of the gospels. So just look it up later. You'll see and read out Mesopotamian art and history. It's fun. Anyway, Matthew, he gets an angel because the angel announces to Joseph, you're gonna, the son of God is going to be born. Luke, he gets the ox because Luke is a gospel about sacrifice <laughs> hard work. John, he gets the eagle because he's majestic. Mark, he gets the lion because of Jesus' kingly authority. Okay, that's it. Just look it up later. It's awesome. Okay. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All right. How it begins with the beginning. The very first word in Greek here is arche. It, it even drops off the indefinite article. It begins with the word literally. If you open up Mark's manuscript, it just says beginning. It starts with beginning. There's not even a the beginning. Why? Because if you have an article there, then that designates a point in time. But it's before the beginning. It's beginning. You'll catch that on your way home. Like, oh, right, got it. All right. So the way Mark begins is the beginning of the gospel. Now, how does the Bible begin? In the beginning, God created. What is Mark trying to signal to the reader right out of the gate? He doesn't tell you about the virgin birth. He doesn't tell you the genealogy of Jesus. He just starts. He doesn't even address the audience by name. Because that's two ways to, that you can start one of the gospels. Luke, I, Luke, write to you, Theophilus. Mark skips that. He just goes straight to fireworks. Boom, there's a new beginning. There's a new start for all of creation right now. There's a beginning. The beginning of what? The gospel, the announcement, the booming declaration of God. There is good news about who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. It's not going to be a person of fame, not a person of power, not a person of wealth, not a person of influence. We're talking about something far beyond just somebody wandering around in Seattle right now. The gospel is going to be about Jesus Christ. The very first thing that comes out of his mouth sets the trajectory for the rest of the book. Everything that follows after is good news. Everything. Even the hard call to discipleship and repent of sin is called good news, according to Mark. So the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, his name's not Jesus Christ. Like, he wasn't born and Mary's like, we're going to call him Jesus Christ. <laughs> Rather, he was given the name Jesus by the angel, which means salvation. It's a common name in the first century among the Hebrew people and the Jewish people. And the name Christ is, is the word Messiah, which the Messiah, according to how everyone was expecting in the first century, was to be a military leader, a political leader, someone that's going to come in and smash Rome. Israel was occupied by Rome, and it was awful. And so they expected a military leader to show up. They expected a politician. They expected somebody that could wow the crowds and exercise real authority. Jesus certainly wowed the crowds. And in John chapter 6, they try to make Jesus king, but Jesus declines. Why? Because to become king 
in their sense of king was a demotion. He's like, oh, I'm king. <laughs> but it's bigger than your little nation state. And the good news of the gospel is this. Jesus, the Messiah, the king of Israel, is savior of the world. Okay. So the good news of the gospel about Jesus Christ. The beginning. Verse 2. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Okay. Isaiah, 8th century prophet. Remember we just covered Micah. He was Micah's contemporary. So 8 centuries before. And this is important to note. Jesus has a forerunner. Someone's going to come before him. That Jesus is not going to show up completely unexpected or completely unannounced, but rather Jesus is going to fulfill what's been written of him long before, eight centuries before. They have been expecting the Messiah. Behold, I send my messenger. There's a lot of pronouns here. My messenger, your face, who will prepare your way. Who is the I? That's God the Father. I send my messenger. That will be John the baptizer. Before your face, the your there is Jesus himself. Okay. He will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. So when John the Baptist shows up on the scene, he shows up with a message. In fact, it says in verse 4, John appeared. That John was present. That John shows up to his assignment. That he didn't phone it in. That he didn't send a note. That he didn't send a substitute. But John was called. John was assigned. And John did what John was told to do. I appear. Or he appeared. And his job is to prepare the way of the Lord. That is to smooth out a path for the king of kings. To make a lot of room. To make sure that the king has the, that his way is, is appropriately set up for him to accomplish his ministry. And so John does that. And how does John prepare the way of the Lord? He begins baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So it begins, I mean, you're, Four or five verses into the book and you're already hearing Jesus, Son of God, gospel, and repent of sin. Which is wildly unpopular language in Seattle today to say the least. To repent of sin. And yet, this is the good news of the gospel. Is that God's invitation to repent of sin is not a one-time thing. It's the ongoing posture of the Christian life. Is to want to stay in the place of repentance. That I keep practicing my repentance. To repent of sin. Now sin is not just a mistake. Sin is not just, oh, I, I, I kind of messed up there. It was a, sin's more than that. Sin is a moral defiance of God. To use our Anglican language, it's, sin comes through commission and omission. We do acts that God instructs us not to do. And then we leave off things that God's told us to do. We omit things. And John begins proclaiming to repent 
of sin. And this is the consistent call for everyone who is to come after John the Baptist and Jesus and the apostles and all down through the ages of the church is to consistently repent of sin and to agree with God about what sin is and to take on the heart that he's called us to have in regards towards sin. And in calling us to repent of sin, God is not trying to make you a mere slave. In fact, he's actually interested in you becoming wholly human. And the way to come about becoming wholly human, where you find yourself in the created order, is through repentance of sin, through trust in Jesus, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now this gives you what it means to be human. So he begins to proclaim, repent of your sins. We don't know what sin he's calling out. It's not like listed, but it was obviously clear enough <laughs> in the minds of the people. I, I agree. And they begin to be baptized. Look what it says. All the country in verse 5 of Judea and all of Jerusalem, they're going out. They're going out to John and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. So they leave the city and even the suburbs, <laughs> want to call it that. And they go out, way out to the River Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, here's a question. Has anybody ever taught you how to confess your sins? I mean, if you grew up in church, you probably heard the language, confess your sin, maybe every week. Did anybody ever stop to tell you how? I never did. In fact, I went to a whole lot of seminary for like 20 years, and no one said, hey, Alex, do you know how to confess your sin? Like, <laughs> no. Uh, if you grow up Catholic, the idea of confessing sin is pretty clear. You go to the priest in your confessional. You tell the priest your sins, and the priest then will talk to God about your situation, and then he'll give you an assignment about the rosary and... Hail Marys and other things like that, kinds of practice of penance. That's how Catholics do it. In some Protestant traditions, like in Lutheranism or Anglicanism or in the Reformed Church of America or something like that, you'll have kind of a, a prayer book, like the Book of Common Prayer or something like that. That, um, you know it's me. I'm a rookie. <laughs> 20 years into this, it's like, come on, dude. And so in a Protestant tradition, you'll have like a prayer book that'll kind of help guide you along kind of corporately about confessing sin. And that can be very helpful too. But how do you confess your sin? What does that look like for you? Here's what confession is not. And we do this all the time in our church, you know, in our liturgy where we do confession, pardon, and assurance. Um, Confession is not the time in the worship service where you feel like garbage about yourself. <laughs> confession is not looking in the mirror and going, you should clean your act up, buddy. Confession is not like a Bart Simpson prayer where you start bartering with God, like if you get me out of this, I'll try to be a better person or something. Confession isn't self-flagellation. Confession isn't sitting under the weight and condemnation of sin. For those of us who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. So what is confession then? Confession means to square with the truth. 
not in a place of shame, guilt, fear, dread, and damnation. Confession is to square with the truth of God. And that can be very uncomfortable when we've lived in untruth and lies. It's not fun by any stretch. But to confess sin means to say, God, I agree with you. I agree. I agree. I may not like what you have to say, but I agree with you. And I acknowledge what I've said or what I've done or what I've left undone. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you what you already know about me. Why? Because confession is not about a transaction. It's not just trying to clear out. (laughs) Confession is about restoring a relationship. That's what confession is. You do it with your friends or a spouse, hopefully, (laughs) consistently, saying something to the effect of, you know what, you're right. You're right. I'm wrong right here. I need mercy. I need mercy. I need grace. I completely dropped the ball. I, I, I failed. I failed. And so John's proclaiming, repent of your sin. Repent of your sin. Meaning forsake your sin. Give up your sin. Let it go. It's crushing you. It's polluting God's world. It's certainly broken your relationship with him. Give it up. (laughs) Confess. Agree with God. And so they were. They were confessing their sins and being baptized. I like this detail that Mark includes here. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair (laughs) and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts with wild honey. (laughs) Which might be on some menu of some progressive place downtown right now. I don't know. Um, But John was clothed in camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist. Why, Why is that detail important? Because John was a desert ascetic. Because John had set himself completely apart. In fact, John's dressed exactly like Elijah. And if you go read Malachi, please read that book this week. You'll see here he is. So you're seeing this prophetic figure wearing camel's hair. Why? Because he's physically making himself uncomfortable. And he's eating this nomadic diet of locusts and wild honey. These are things that were prescribed by the law, that you can eat these things. And, And John had completely set himself aside in every way from the city. In fact, when Jesus talks about John later, John is... John is tough. Jesus says no one's born of woman is greater than John the baptizer. And John, in fact, when they started talking about John and his reputation, he goes, well, what did you expect when you went out to the desert to talk to John? What did you expect? To find a a reed shaken by the wind? Did you expect God to send like a weakling with like no opinion about anything? Did you actually expect a guy to show up and say, hey, God doesn't care what you do with your life and actually doesn't have an opinion about everything and it's all gonna work out in the end? Is that what you expected? Did you expect to find a politician? Did you expect to find somebody pandering to everybody in the room? No. John was called by God and John John was faithful to do exactly what God had called him to do. 
John was tough. John's wearing camel's hair and a leather belt, eating locusts and wild honey, preaching a message of repentance. I love John. And he preached, saying, in case you're wondering, preaching is, is essential to the gospel, by the way. It's not just live a good life and try to be a good person in front of your neighbors. Preaching means to articulate what you believe about the Son of God. Preaching means that you're going to open your mouth and say a few things that the rest of the world's not going to be okay with. That's just what it is. It's just going to be like that. So John preached. And he had a specific message. After me comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, to stoop down and untie. Uh, so in this context, if you had a rabbi and disciples, disciples were required to do everything that the rabbi instructs them to do. Everything, with the exception of handling their shoes. Why? Because in the open city, where there's sometimes sewage and other things like that, running in the streets, feet were the most despicable, despised part of the body. In fact, slaves would save their small wage to pay other slaves to wash a master's feet. So when John the baptizer begins to announce who's coming after him, he's saying, I'm not worthy to be associated with the lowest assignment that would be in relation to Jesus himself. I'm not above anything if it has to do with serving Jesus. In fact, I don't qualify. I don't qualify to untie this man's shoes. He must be pretty mighty. In fact, I have one piece of artwork, if we have it here, if we can put it up, it would be great. Um, this is one of the most brutal depictions of the crucifixion. In 1515, a guy named Matthias Grunwald painted this. And this painting hung above one of the greatest theologians' desks. His name is Karl Barth. He's a Swiss Reformed theologian. You've probably heard his name at some point along the way. And in the, in the painting, you see the two Marys are there. You see the lamb and the wine chalice at the, at the base. And then you've got John, John the baptizer, standing here. And even on Jesus' crucifix, you can see Jesus, the, the, the cross beam is bending under the damnation of God. You can see Jesus' fingers going up. Like he's giving up his spirit. But then you see this, these fingers are, 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 are in contrast to, to these, these praying fingers here of Mary. But then John's got this very strong finger. And when students and other professors would show up in Karl Barth's office and ask him, about the painting, Carl would say, oh, I love that painting. I want to be the finger. Like, I want my whole life to point to Jesus. 
Not just give him a thought and a tip of a hat on a Sunday morning or show up at Christmas or Easter once in a while or maybe when I blow it and I really got to talk to him about something really bad or I'm scared of something I see in the news like, shoot, I better say a prayer now. No, 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 no. I want every minute of my life to come into conformity with Jesus himself. I want my whole life to point to Jesus. I want my finances. I want my work. I want my friendships. I want every ounce, the way I raise my children, the way I treat my spouse, the way I treat everyone, whether it's an unhoused neighbor, whether it's a refugee, whether it's a sex worker, I want every single person in my life to be pointed to the Savior of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his shoes. Why? Because the one who comes after me is mighty. Christian, how long has it been since someone reminded you that your Savior is mighty? When you think about Jesus, please don't only have a picture of him as a lamb. You need to see him as the Lion of God, the creator of all things, one with God, fulfilling the law, fulfilling the prophets, fulfilling the promises, the one who can raise the dead with his voice, the one who walks on the ocean, the one who can calm the sea, the one who calls forth the dead, the one who cures sickness, the one that puts families back together. See your Savior as mighty. In fact, I'll just turn this off. This. Like, see your Savior as mighty. You have a mighty You 
are the people of God. And so John was not ashamed to stand before a world and point and say, that's the Savior. That's the Lamb of God. That's the one. Hallelujah. Holy cow. I'm going to have church all by myself. Look, look, man. All right. Uh, one more verse. Uh, this is the end. Uh, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his shoes. And then the last thing. I baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's baptism was one where you're confessing sin. And you're recognizing, I've broken the relationship. I did. I've done things that God doesn't want me to do. I, I admit. I've left things undone. I confess my sin. And John's going, right. And I'm going to baptize you with water. It's this picture of cleansing. This picture of Waking up this picture of being whole again. And he, he's not just going to baptize you with water. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Meaning he will submerge your life in a way that your life becomes hidden in God. He'll baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Meaning that your life is lived out of that center. That the Holy Spirit actually indwells his people. Jesus says to the disciples later in the gospel, he goes, the Holy Spirit is with you. And one day he's going to be within you. That of all the places that God could choose to live in the universe, he's chosen the very interior of your life. All the places that you don't want anybody to see, God says, that's where I want to move in. So all the things that don't make your highlight reel on Instagram, that's all the places that God wants to be. That's right. So I'll baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Meaning, meaning, not just in theory, but in reality, that the Spirit of God indwells and accompanies the people who will confess their sin and place their faith in Jesus. He says, the one coming after me is going to bring you God. I don't know if he can get anything bigger than this. This disheveled prophet <laughs> standing out in the wilderness saying he's going to bring you God. Not Caesar, who's going to take everything from you. He's going to bring you God, and he's going to heal you. And he's going to bring you into the family. And he's going to give you focus. And he's going to give you purpose. And he's going to give you meaning. And he's going to give you direction. He's going to be with you. He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. And then as you see, the rest of the ministry takes off with Jesus. We'll read about his baptism next week. And the whole life of Christ is one in which he, which he reaches in and lives out of his identity as God's son. That he, the spirit of God empowers us. That if you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, the idea is that you begin to think like Jesus and talk like Jesus and act like Jesus, and serve like Jesus, and pray like Jesus. As you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 8, verse 15, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, become true of you. He sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying out. What does it say? Abba, Father. Abba, Father. The whole point of the gospel is to get you to that place. Where you go from an enemy to a child of Almighty God. God is not tolerating you, mind you. God delights in you because you're his child. And that is great news. 
Okay.